Turn uh, with, with me to Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1, on page, I believe, 61 in your Bibles that are provided. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of your, the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord, God, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In our key text for this morning, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. So as we're finishing this series on the Ten Commandments, you might be tempted to think that the least important commandment is saved for last, right? It's, it's kind of like the tail end. It's kind of like the catch-all kind of one. It's kind of an afterthought. It's like, oh, shoot. It's kind of like parents. Before you send your kids out, you start off with the really important things. It's like, okay, you be kind, you be nice, you do this, you do that. And then all of a sudden at the end, right before they're going out the door, you go, oh, 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 by the way, don't forget this, 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 this. We kind of think that maybe this is what God had in mind. It was kind of the catch-all. And the reality is it's kind of an unusual commandment. Most of the previous ones had to do with actions. You sh shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. These, these are outward actions dealing with 
what you should not do. But this commandment deals with the heart. Deals with the heart. Some of us may even see coveting as something good. In fact, we might see it as a route to personal fulfillment. I, I, I want to have that, so therefore I'm going to kind of have this plan to work out. So I'm going to have, I, I desire that, I really covet it. But despite the fact that this commandment is last, and despite the fact that it might look a little strange that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's, I want to show you that this is a profound commandment. It's the, if you will, it's almost a climax of the, of the commandments, kind of a bookend. Because the first commandment we have says what? You shall have no other gods before me. And then it ends by saying, you shall not covet. It's, it's a bookend. All the other, in some ways, this 10th commandment, we come full circle all the way around back to the first one. All the other commandments are just restatements and applications of the first and the last commandments. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at what does this commandment really say? What does it say to you and me as we're in this century, at this time, in this particular context, geographically and historically? And what, what problem does this commandment reveal about us? What really, if we could do a little bit of heart surgery and kind of tear back and look intently into our hearts and our minds, what does it reveal about us? And lastly, we've got to ask, well, so what is the solution? Where is there hope in any of this? So let's start. What does this commandment say? If we look at Exodus 20, 17, it says, You shall not covet. Period. You shall not covet your, your neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, ox or donkey, or anything that's your neighbor. And, and we really have to look at this carefully to make sure that we understand what it is really saying. How many of you own a male servant or, or a donkey? Oh, not your husband, no. Or male, a, a donkey or a, an ox. How many own anything? Or, or no people. You know, the Schistlers aren't here. They'd be the, the closest people that we would know who might own a donkey or an ox. But even them, they, they don't. And I, none of us go, I, I, don't, I don't want it. So what is it really saying here? The word covet is really communicating desire. Desire. The word in itself, desiring something, isn't necessarily bad. The Bible never says that desire is a bad thing in and of itself. Desiring is not a bad thing. The problem in this passage, though, is that the object of desire is off limits because it belongs to somebody else. To desire something that belongs to someone else means that my desire becomes more important than the relationship that I have with that person. It leads to all kinds of other problems too. I may lie or steal or kill in order to obtain what rightfully belongs to someone else. And if it's not murder outright, it's murder in our hearts. The focus of this commandment 
is relationships. The reality is that coveting kills relationships. And some of you are going, well, I really don't covet those kind of things. But yet all of us do covet. And we just might not realize it because we have so glorified desiring good things. But somehow these good things have become ultimate things, right? Parents, I I want you to start thinking what you're already projecting on your children. You are coveting what for your children? You're coveting success. You're coveting that they stay home. You're coveting that they stay close to you. You're coveting that they have this kind of wife, this kind of husband, and you're coveting these things. It's good to have a desire, right? But some of us make it ultimate. And, it all, and if it doesn't work out that way, what happens? It kills relationships. So as we look at this commandment, we've got to look closely. God could have just said, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. But he gets very specific here. Very specific. He lists things that, were, that they were likely to covet. Our neighbor's property, our, uh, his, the house, a wife, a donkey. And after listing the specific, this commandment says, kind of in that, that catch-all, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The specificity of this command is very realistic. Anything that is your neighbor's. It anticipates the things that these, these uh, Israelites were likely to covet. Today, we might say, don't covet your neighbor's house, family, Cottage, job, bank account, car, freedom. Don't covet those things. And you can't get off the hook with what this command teaches because it speaks to us today. We're likely to look at our neighbor's possessions, positions, and accomplishments and want what they have. All of us. Just think about it. These are the things that many of us desire, right? We desire things, but we desire them as more than just things. These are the very things that form our identities. right house or have the right spouse or drive that car or get that job, we will really matter. That we will have arrived or that we will really count as someone or that my parenting is validated that I've arrived. So coveting, you see, is is a problem because it disrupts our relationships with our neighbors with our friends, our family, our, our co-workers. It, it, it disrupts these, these relationships because none of us ha- can ever walk into the room as totally neutral. None of you. Many of you know this. That a friend walks in the room and you can see it on their face. And you can read their body language. You can hear how they're sharp or they're absolutely silent or how they're just jabbering away and you can hear it in the tone 
None of us are, are silent. And so this says, coveting, desiring what is not yours, hoping for what does, God has not given to you, and hoping it for yourself disrupts relationships. But it's also a problem because our coveting is really a sign that our heart is overvaluing things. Overvaluing things. The ancient scholars, when they translated the Hebrew, the Old Testament Hebrew, into the New Testament Greek, they used a Greek word for the word covet. The word is epithumia. You don't have to write that down. But it's one of those words that, that is frequently used. This word is found all throughout the New Testament to talk about coveting or desires. It often translates as lusts or, or passions. But what does it mean? It means sometimes, in a positive sense, a strong desire for something. In a positive sense having a strong desire. But most often, it is used negatively. In most cases, it means an inordinate desire. That we want something too strongly. So what does this mean? It means that the problem isn't really our desires. It isn't our desires. The problem is when our desires are disordered so that we desire some things too much and other things not enough. Disordered desires. Here's the reality. I love Oreos. Just ask my kids. When, I, when we go on vacations, when I do even a mancation, I love to take a package of Oreos. I personally could finish them all to myself. I love Oreos. It's probably my upbringing. You know, it was either ice cream, chocolate ice cream at night or Oreos. And I, I, I love, I love Oreos. I love my job. I love my family. And those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with loving Oreos, loving your job, and there's nothing wrong with loving your family. The problem is when I love any of these things, in the wrong order. For instance, I love Oreos more than I love my job. Things will start happening. Or if, if I love my job more than I love my family. Or if I love any of these things more than I love God. <laughs> Centuries ago, St. Augustine or Augustine, depends how snooty you are with pronouncing his name, had a book called The Confessions. And he said in his book that our fundamental problem is that our loves are profoundly disordered. We're, we're pleased with, with God's gifts. We are just pleased with God's gifts. And, but we displease God by loving the gifts over him the giver. It's disordered. Augustine captures this dynamic just beautifully by saying this. Nathan, you could throw it up there for me. First quote. And you got, remember he's an old guy from way back when, so you got to kind of think through this. All these things are the gift of my God. 
I did not give them to myself. These things are good, and they all made up my being. Therefore, he who made me is good, and he is my good. But in this was my sin, that not in him, but in his creatures, in myself and others, I seek pleasure, honors, and truths. So it's not bad to have desire a great family. It's not bad to desire good food. It's not bad to desire to, to get better at your job. The problem is disordered love. Loving the things as opposed to the one who gives us these things. It's often that we desire the wrong things. It is wrong to set our affection on anything or anyone as if that person is God. And some of us are just blind to it. Blind. We don't even realize that we're doing that. We are setting our children, our, our jobs, our, our, our financial, our success, all these things. We are, our desires for these things. And we're setting them even above God. We're in your goal. That's just not me. That's not my case. I just have a good desire for it. How much are you obsessing over it? You're giving inordinate amount of time and desire and passion and, and tears and, and fretting over it because you covet this over God. Real problem, real problem is that with us is that our desires are ultimately out of order. Our greatest need is that our desires be reordered so that we desire the right things in the right order. So let me kind of put all this together. Our, our problem is that we want what is rightfully, what rightfully belongs to other people. What's more, we tend to base our identities on these things, our, our desiring these things. And the problem is that these desires become inordinate desires that begin to control us so that we are ultimately held captive by them. And I'll be honest, I struggle with this like everybody else. I, d I don't get a hall pass on the 10th commandment where I just got to walk free. God, God didn't say, hey, Paul, I'm going to give you the calling to minister to the church. Therefore, you will not uh, struggle at all with the 10th commandment. It's my blessing to you. I absolve you from all coveting of any way, shape, or form. I covet. I covet. And that covetous heart often leads to bitterness. And, and dare I even say that that coveting leads not only to bitterness, it also leads to a murder in my heart. And if I could be honest with you, I even struggle with it on a weekly basis, sometimes while I'm even standing here. I, I struggle with it as I, I look out over the landscape of Christendom, especially since social media has brought everything right to your desktop. I struggle with coveting. 
God and I have this constant battle and discussion about my call and where he has me. And here's just a couple examples. And these, these are things that I am working through. And I don't need you to come up and give me the pat on the butt and just say, ah, it's all right, we all struggle with that. No, these are, these are real, real sins. I cut when I look at other churches. I do. Some of you are going, you're ridiculous. No, it's true. I covet their place of prominence. Uh, you know, we, we got, what, pretty full Sunday morning. But I, I, I covet churches that have huge city blocks sometimes, that have great big missions and great big budgets, and they don't really have to worry about financial stuff. I covet those kind of things. I, I covet when I look, and this is where I covet on Sunday mornings, I covet when I look at other people's abilities to get away. Todd and I were just talking about this this morning, or uh, this past week, about this sermon, where are you going at? And, I said, and he said, so how do you bring this home? And I said, I really covet your ability to get away, where you can disengage and just say, hey, we're going to go up to here, we're going to go up there for the weekend. And I'm going, Seriously? I desire that for my family. I want what you have, and I cannot have it. But it says something about my heart. It says something about my heart. I covet Sunday mornings to just be able to... I, I remember, when, even before we started Missio Day Church, my wife and I were able to sit Sunday mornings side by side, my arm around her, and I was fed on Sunday mornings. Sunday after Sunday, we'd, and then we'd be able to go out before we had children. So I covet, you know, not having children, those of you who don't have kids. <laughs> That's a whole nother level, you know. But we, we'd be able to get up late, and we'd go to the later service, and we, we'd sit at Starbucks before, and then we'd go out to eat afterwards and just have these really good, delicious conversations with each other without being distracted. And, and I go, really? Why can't we have that? They have that. And so I struggle with these things. I covet what is not mine. So what do I do with this? What, what do you do with it? Because you are covetous as well. You have the same kind of heart as I do. And if you say you don't, you are lying. Maybe you don't ask your spouse if you're married, you know, where do I covet? Ask your friends. They'll go, you want me to be honest? I'll tell you. I hear it in what, how you talk. I hear it in how you look at these people. Even our gossip reveals something about what we covet, Right? So what do we do with this? So it, it takes us back to the next question, and it helps us get to the root of it. What does this really reveal about ourselves? At first glance, you wouldn't think that this is such a big deal, and many of us would agree that it's wrong to murder, that it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal, but we don't see what's wrong of thinking about what other people have and desiring it for ourselves. But actually, this commandment reveals that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. This commandment gets to the heart of what's wrong with us. It identifies a fault line in our heart. And when I say that, do you understand what I'm saying? It, if you even look at a rock, 
and there's a, a tiny little fault in it, a, fi- a, a hairline in it. Keep knocking at it, ultimately what happens? It breaks, right? It shows the place where we are most vulnerable. And we don't think that this commandment is, is a big deal, but James says that breaking this commandment leads to all kinds of problems. Listen to James 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrel and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Same word. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says that the problem behind even church battles and unanswered prayers are a big problem. We desire what we do not have. And James chapter 1, verse 14 says that our over-desires are the sin beneath the other sins. Listen to this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire, then desire, when it has conceived, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So these over-desires are not just one sin among many. Inordinate desire is the sin beneath the sin. It's the root of everything else. Other sins are just more visible and, more of res- and are the result of the inordinate desires, the, the desires that are in our heart that are bubbling up, giving birth, and ultimately it leads to death. It gives, gets even more serious than this, though. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing, uh, writes that our coveting, our inordinate desires, are really violations of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So the first commandment and the tenth commandment are really the same. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 5, For you may be, uh, may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or pure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And again in Colossians 3, 5 and 6, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And I love what it's listed with. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on which of the, on account of these things the wrath of God is coming. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that when we see when we see that someone else has something, and we begin to desire what they have in an inordinate kind of way, that we are not just committing a little sin, as if there is really any such thing. When we just have to have something, just gotta have it, when we won't rest when we won't rest until we have that new house or have that car or have that relationship, have that person, have our desires, 
And when we continually want more and more than we have right now, then we are no different from the person who goes to a temple and bows down to a stone or wooden idol. We are idolaters. We have stopped worshiping the one and true God at that very moment. And we have instead begun to worship whatever it is that we long for. And this brings us back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. You, you see how the, the first and the tenth are really bookends? Each and every other commandment is a variation of these two. And these are the sins beneath all sins. But this means we have, you and I, have a very serious problem. The problem is that you can be a very moral person. A very moral person who goes to church once or twice or three times or a hundred times on Sunday, does all the activities that you are supposed to be doing you might even be hosting a missional community in your house. You might be a great Sunday school teacher. You might be in charge of hospitality. You might be doing any, donating a gajillion dollars. You might be doing all these great and moral things. Who does all amazing things that everybody should be patting you on the back and still break this commandment. Because it's a commandment of the heart. You may honor your parents. You may refuse to steal, refuse to lie. You may refuse to ever commit adultery. But in your heart, your affections are disordered. You have over-desires, and these over-desires mean that you are an adult, uh, idolater, which makes you guilty of the commandment that is the foundation of all others. Even Saul, who was later became renamed as Paul was a very moral man. He, he, he gave his, his job description, laid it out, to, this is who I am. He, he, he laid it out. But what, later on, as he was writing the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7, he mentioned it that this commandment as an example of his life. He said that this commandment, not, uh, this, this commandment to covet exposed his lost and sinful condition. The problem isn't the command, he said. The problem is the human heart. Soren Kierkegaard, I don't know if I have this, this, throw it up there for me. He said this, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. That, that's the normal state of your heart, of my heart, to build my identity around other things other than God. Again, our, our mouths often reveal what truly is at our heart. What do you talk about the most? Parents, how many of you talk a lot about your kids? and what you want for them, and what you desire for them, and uh, your kids, and your kids, and everybody on Facebook goes, just shut up. 
done hearing about your kids. Enough. Maybe that is God revealing something. Coveting. We all have covetous and idolatrous hearts. We regularly set our highest affections on people and other things rather than on God, which leads us to bondage. It leads us to conflict. And ultimately, it leads us to death. That's what this does. We have got to admit openly and be okay with saying, I am an idolater. I am an idolater. My affections and desires are disordered. Maybe that's, that's part of your morning confession. You wake up, and it doesn't sound like the most happy, you know, kind of thing. What's a guy on Saturday Night Live? He looks into the mirror. <laughs> Stewart's, you know, just positive reinforcement about who I am. And doggone it, people love you. You know, kind of mentality. No, maybe this is kind of, you wake up in the morning and just look in the, Paul, you are an idolater. You are broken. You, you covet what is not yours. And just be honest. First thing in the morning instead of saying, you're a great person. Just say, man, I am broken. Therefore, I am in need of something. I am in need of a solution. My deepest satisfaction, sadly, is, is not the giver of all good gifts. But I'm rather more deeply affectionate in the gifts that he gives me. So this leads us to the last question. What do we do with this? If we are all idolaters, if we are all covetous, if we are all broken at our very core, what in the world do we do? How do we reorder our affections? How do I reorder my affections so that I love God most? How do I, how do I say, man, Lord, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in, in ceaseless, endless praise. Lord, may that be my prayer. How, how do we reorder ourselves so that God is the most precious, most beautiful, that we desire to gaze upon his beauty as opposed to the beauty that is fleeting of the things of this world? How do we keep from sin of idolatry? Well, I mentioned earlier that this, the word desire often means a strong desire. And when it's for the wrong things, it's obviously a bad thing, right? When we make good things and turn them into ultimate things, then our desires become idolatrous. But the word desire can also be used in a very positive way as well. Hear that. So don't strike it from your vocabulary and just say, don't ever say desire. Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly, so he adds like an adjective on top of it. I've earnestly desired for centuries a Passover meal pointed forward to the true Passover lamb who would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Now Jesus sat down with his followers, his closest chums, and he longed to be the true and better Passover lamb. I, I, I earnestly desire this. And Jesus said, I, 
I want to do this before I suffer. And there's that word again, that Greek word for desire. From this we learn that Jesus had a strong and a good desire. And what was it? To give his life for his people. As a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He had a strong desire to give his life to atone, to cover over your sins. So what can set us free from our over-desires, our covetous hearts, our idolatrous hearts? Friends, it is seeing and grasping and grappling with what Jesus did for us when he offered his life for our sins. seeing, grasping, and grappling with. I talked about this in our Ash Wednesday service, that faith is, is I know I push some buttons, but faith is more about our affections, and we need to be more affectional than intellectual. It's not enough just to know about Jesus up here. Man, I use the example, Jesus is not a baseball card deck where you can pull out all these, uh, all these facts about Jesus. I got all these facts. I can, e I can even define these words using Westminster Confession, or I can use these defining the Heidelberg or Bible from the Bible. I can define all these things. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I can do all these things. It's more than just intellectual. It is a thing of our heart. Where this information so travels down and it changes our hearts and our affections. And we, we so long to just gaze upon the beauty of the gospel. Here, here's, here's another way that it was used positively. And I love this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter talks about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. The gospel. He's talking about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. So he's talking about the, the beauty of the gospel. And then he concludes with this stunning statement. Even angels long, there's that word desire or covet, angels long to look into these things. Angels are smart. They're smarter than you. They have seen things that you and I have never seen. And they have been around longer than any of us have been around. And yet, these angels who do God's bidding long to understand, long to understand what Christ has accomplished for us through His death and His resurrection. Even angels are longing to understand the power, the beauty, the magnitude of the gospel. Angels! So what do we do? How, do? how do we apply this? We have got to understand that Jesus set his affections on you. To the extent that what? What did he do? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And when he gave, it wasn't just, a, oh, there, there's Jesus. He gave so that ultimately Christ would come and be that Passover, perfect and better Passover lamb for you. So that when you covet and you desire and you kill in your heart, you commit adultery in your head and physically, you, you lie, you cheat, you steal. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ has all, if you are in him and you believe in him, he has set his affections on you. He is saying, Paul, I love you. You idolatrous, covetous jerk. What are you doing? I love you. Set your eyes on me. Take your eyes off all these other things because I am far more beautiful. I am far more powerful. I am far more potent than anything. I am everlasting. These things are fading. Set your affections on me. Friends, I want you to long to grasp the gospel. It is multifaceted. But long to grasp it and understand all that Jesus did through his death and his resurrection. Grapple with it daily. As you're reading scripture, and you get in your missional communities, as you get in your men's, men's group, as you're reading books, as you're reading, and you go, oh my gracious, look at this. Well, that's really nice information. Shut the book. No! You, you grapple with it, and you go, so what does this have to do with me? How is this going to transform me as I believe more of this? And how is it changing? What is God calling me out of and into? Grasp the heights, the depths of the love of God. Listen to Colossians 3.1, and this is the closing. And it's a calling. If you have been raised with Christ. Qualifier, did you hear that? If you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated. Where, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. If you are in Christ, seek the things that are above. If you are not seeking the things that are above, check your heart. Check your pulse. Maybe it's time to start moving this stuff up here, down here, and reordering your heart life. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for... I thank you for Jesus Christ. There's no way that we can... 
uh, go anywhere else but to, to the gospel first. In our prayers, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ and uh, his life, his perfect life that was lived for us and the death that he died for us in our place, the death that we so deserved. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved us with the great love with which he loved us, and, and Christ died for us. Lord, we thank you for that. And not only did he die for us, but he was raised and is reigning. So, Lord, that says something about the power of Christ continuing in our lives. We, we also know because of the gospel, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. We, we thank you that we have the spirit of Christ living within us, convicting us and calling us and re-reminding us and pointing us to Christ. Lord, we thank you for that gift. And Lord, I pray that you will give us hearts that are pliable, ears that are, are listening carefully to the gospel and your call to reorient our lives. God, I pray that this congregation of people have hearts that are set on Christ, that are longing to understand the, the power and the beauty and the magnitude of the gospel. How high and how deep, Lord, we can't even understand how high and deep are the love of Christ because it is astronomical in the directions that it goes. It is so high and so deep, so wide, Lord, that it should drive us to worship. So Lord, would you reorient our lives, our disordered lives. May we, even this morning, be able, before we come to the Lord's Supper, be able to confess our sins especially around this issue of a covetous heart. Knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins, all of our sins, and to cleanse us from all righteousness. And God, that is the beauty and the power of the gospel. Set our eyes on Christ, Lord. Transform your people, Lord. And may we reflect Christ in our families, to our church members, to this lost and broken world. May they see Christ in us, who is the hope of glory. And we pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, the name that's above every other name, the name that saves. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,